So now turn back in your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now we're moving from the, the New Testament to the Old Testament. Um, over the past few months, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and this is a very different type of literature within the Bible. Ephesians is what we could call didactic literature. It's teaching about the gospel and the Christian life. First Samuel is a book of historical narrative. It's about what God has done in the past among his people. Now, very brief context of what's happening in the time of First Samuel. Uh, remember that before this, God had brought Israel up out of bondage in Egypt through the hand of Moses. Then they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then he, he brought them into the promised land through Joshua. You read about that in the book of Joshua. And the next is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, if you, if you read that preceding the book of 1 Samuel, is this period where there was no king in the land and people did what was right in their own eyes. And there's this cycle of where they would worship the Lord, and then the next generation would arise. They wouldn't pass on the faith to the next generation. They would fall into idolatry. God would give them over to their enemies. They would be oppressed. They would cry out to the Lord, and then he would deliver them. And then the cycle would start over again. And this happened over and over again for hundreds of years, where they were ruled by this succession of, of judges um, but it was a, a dark time, a chaotic time uh, of unfaithfulness in the period of Israel. And then we come to, to 1 Samuel, which is really an epic book. Um, it's about the, the rise and fall of kings. It's about God's eternal plan of salvation. And there are really three figures that are center stage on the, the human level of 1 Samuel. Obviously, God is center stage ultimately, uh, but we see Samuel, who is the final judge, bridging this period of the judges to the period of the kings. And then we will have the, the first king of Israel, Saul, and then the, the great golden age of David, the man after God's own heart, who God makes a covenant with David that he would always have a son on the throne. And then Jesus comes ultimately as the, the son of David, the fulfillment of the promises. But you say, why study the book of 1 Samuel? Why study historical narrative that is about events that took place 3,000 years ago? 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. Jesus was as far from Samuel as we are from William the Conqueror. Uh, this is ancient literature. So, so why look at it? Why is there relevance for us here today? And there is that, that we think in terms of stories. That's how God created us, that God is the great storyteller of history. And that we can, we can read the truths of God as we have seen for so long in the book of Ephesians. But as we look at history, we see real people who were engaged with God. We see the successes, we see the failures, and we get to see that the God, the living God of the Bible, 
working in history. And so we learn lessons about God, about ourselves, about salvation, uh, and then many practical lessons of the Christian life along the way. So again, this is 1 Samuel, and today we'll, we'll be looking at chapter 1. And this is printed in your, in your bulletin, or you can turn there in your Bible. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would Give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? <coughs> Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, 
For all along I have for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bowl and a fa of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in, the pre in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Father, we pray for your wisdom as we look at ancient literature, but yet it's literature that speaks to us afresh every generation by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would draw out from this true history, truths that we can apply in the daily life, the daily struggles that we face here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this is a, a book of epic history about the rise and fall of kings and God's eternal plan of salvation. But it begins in a surprising way, surprising to ancient epic literature, but if you are a student of the Bible, it's, it's not surprising at all that it be, the story begins with ordinary people. You see an ordinary man, Elkanah, 
Uh, we can infer from the text that he was moderately well off. He came from a good family, but he was no one significant in and of himself. He's no one that would be remembered 3,000 years later for some great act or for, for some marvelous power. He was ordinary. And he had an ordinary wife named Hannah who comes onto center stage for the first chapter and a half of First Samuel. It's this woman who was an ordinary woman, and you'll notice that she faced ordinary problems, problems that are, are painful but are ordinary in the sense that, that many women, many men, many people throughout human history have had struggles similar to Hannah in this text. You'll notice her first problem that she was facing was barrenness. You see this in verse 2, that she was unable to bear a child. You see the, the phrase in the text that the Lord had closed her womb. And this was, was painful for her. She's, she's not alone in the pages of Scripture. You can think of Sarai, who became Sarah, Abraham's wife. You could think of Elizabeth, the, the wife of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. But maybe some of you have experienced the pain of infertility in the past. You know how hard it can be. Maybe it's something that you're experiencing now, that you long to have a child, but you are unable to have a child. You identify with Hannah's trouble, with her problem. But I think that there are many who can identify with this problem in a different way. She was struggling with the barrenness of her womb, the inability to have a child. But often we can feel barren in life in different ways. Uh, that you, you've, you try to find a, a spouse and it feels like you're barren in your search. Or you try to, to get a job and you search and you search, but you can't find it. Or you try to, to move up in your vocation and it feels like you're not moving ahead. You, you look at your life and you say, this is not what I hoped for my life. This is not the vision that I had when I was young. That you feel sad. You, you feel barren. You wonder where God is. So we can identify with her in that first problem. But then she actually has a second problem as well which is ordinary in the course of human history, but extremely painful. That she has barrenness, and then flowing out of that, she has domestic strife. And you, can, you can sense this strife in the, the details of the text. Because remember, it says that her husband has two wives, and Hannah is named first, and, and most think that she was the first wife. And so why is it that he took a second wife? Well, he's a prominent man. He's an important person. He, he needs an heir. And, and so if his wife Hannah will not provide it, that he'll take a, a second wife. And the text notes that he loved Hannah. He didn't love his second wife, but yet he takes her for a very practical purpose to have offspring, to continue his name, to, to have uh, offspring that he could pass on, an inheritance. He's meeting a practical need. 
And though the Old Testament tolerates polygamy, it's never held up as good. It's never held up as an example. It's always something that is viewed in a negative light in light of God's design and creation. And that's exactly what you see here, that it's, it's against God's design and it brings domestic strife. That Hannah is, is sad, but then Penina, the, the unloved wife with children, as it says in verse 6, used to revile her, to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And I read a section in a, in a commentary that had interesting dialogue, just imagining Panina talking to her children, uh, where the, her children come to her and say, why doesn't Hannah have any children? Does she not want children? And then you could imagine Panina speaking loudly, well, she wants children, but the Lord has closed her womb. The, the Lord hasn't given Hannah any children. The Lord must not love her. The the, the ways that she could have sarcastic comments, um, small passive-aggressive words that would, would drive the thorn deeper in the heart of Hannah, that she felt the pain. And it says that as often as they would go up to, to worship at Shiloh, because remember at this point, Jerusalem was still in the hands of the, the nations and Canaanite hands, um, that they would go up to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle, this tent structure that served as the temple for Israel. When they would go up to offer sacrifice every year, she would pray for a child, and it seemed like God was not answering her prayer. And she becomes so sad that she won't eat, that, that she, she refuses to eat. And, and then her husband shows up and makes it worse, as husbands sometimes can do. Um, so look at verse 8. The, Elkanah says, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And this is free advice to husbands that if your wife is sad and you know why she's sad, don't say, why are you sad? That <laughs> uh, he, he knows, but yet he, he's being unhelpful. And then he, he says something else unhelpful. He says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? And at first that could seem an encouragement. I, I should be enough. Uh, but there's an irony in his words because apparently Hannah was not enough. She was not more to him than 10 sons because he took another wife to secure an heir but then somehow he thinks that he should be enough for her, even though she's not enough for him. This would reinforce the, the sense of pain, the sense of, of loss that she would feel, not being understood. And just as some of you could perhaps identify with the, the barrenness of Hannah, maybe you can identify with the domestic strife. Maybe you have a, a panina in your family. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a, a grandparent. Someone in your family who, who makes life difficult. Or maybe you're in a marriage similar to Hannah. Maybe your husband doesn't understand what you're going through. Maybe your wife doesn't understand. Maybe 
You sense that your spouse is not fully committed to you in the relationship. And it drives you to a place of hopelessness, a place of depression where you're saying, I don't want to, to eat anymore. My, my heart's full of anxiety, of pain. Is God ever going to show up in my life? And we can identify with Hannah in many ways. So we see her, her problem, but then look at her solution. Look at what Hannah does, that she refuses to wallow in her despair, that she goes and she pours herself out to the Lord. And that's what we see in, in verse 9. After the sacrifice, she, she goes to the, the tabernacle, and she goes and she prays, verse 10, that she's deeply distressed, she's weeping bitterly. Verse 11, that she vows a vow. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And so we can marvel at the, the theology of Hannah here, that she, she knows her scripture well, that she's appealing to the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. And she's saying, Lord, if you will give me a child, I will dedicate him to the Lord. Give me the very thing that I desire, and I will give it back to you as an act of sacrifice, an act of worship. And notice her other theological assumptions. She assumes that God is real. She assumes that God hears prayer. Even when she's not praying out loud, it says she's praying in her heart that she knows that God hears her thoughts. And she has this very biblical, audacious assumption that God cares about the struggles of an ordinary woman from an ordinary place, that, that she assumes that, that God, though he has not answered her prayer in years of calling out, that he still cares, that he's still listening, that he's still engaged. And that's something for all of us to remember, that when we call out to the Lord in the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle, that he hears us. He cares about ordinary people with, with ordinary problems, ordinary struggles, that he is engaged with his creation, that the, the boldness to approach to the throne of grace is not just a, a New Testament reality, that we see it here, that we can pour ourselves out, pour our soul out to the Lord. But then the pastor shows up. Eli comes on the scene. He's the, the priest there at Shiloh. And at first you think this is good. The, the, the religious leader, the clergy is on the scene to minister to this poor woman. But notice what he does, that he, he assumes the worst. He assumes that she is a, says, a worthless woman, that she is drunk. That, and so he goes and he rebukes her. How long will you go on being drunk? And as we'll see, this is the very priest who didn't rebuke his own sons for dishonoring the sacrifices of God. 
uh, the very priest who, who though nominally faithful, uh, would be rejected. His, his line would be rejected in the priesthood. And yet here he is with his judgmental heart, this judgmental spirit towards this poor young woman praying in the temple tabernacle. And I think that even here there's, there's application for us that perhaps you are feeling the pain of life, you're, you're depressed, and, and you go and you say, I want to, to pray to the Lord. I want to finally get reconnected to church. You show up at church after you've been away for a long time. And then do you see a bunch of religious church-going people who, who welcome you and think the best of you and want to minister to you? That perhaps what you find is, is a bunch of judgmental people, who <laughs> a bunch of judgmental uh, religious Pharisees who think the worst of you, who assume that there's something wrong with you, who rebuke you unfairly. And somebody like Hannah could be tempted to reject organized religion. I don't want anything to do with the tabernacle anymore. Or I don't want anything to do with God's people. I don't want anything to do with pastors or clergy because they're, they're judgmental. But that's not her response, that, that she still is pursuing the Lord. She, she can see through the, the hypocrisy and failure of religious leaders to the, the faithfulness of God. And that she then responds gently. She explains her prayer. She explains her situation. And thankfully, Eli responds positively, that he blesses her. May the Lord answer your prayer. And then we see this incredible response from Hannah in verse 18. It says that she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So what is the change here in Hannah's life? Is there any external change in her life? There is no external change. She still doesn't have a child. She still is going home to a difficult domestic situation. As far as she knows, she, that she will still be barren for a season. But yet what changed within her that now she can eat? Now she is no longer sad. That she has experienced what many believers have experienced throughout the ages. That when we come to the Lord in distress, when we come to the Lord in, in the pain of our heart, that we, we pour our heart out to the Lord, then we hear the promise of the Lord. We hear the, the word of God proclaimed to us that we are able to, to leave encouraged. We're able to leave with hope. Before our external circumstances change, based purely on the promises of God and the hope that God is at work in the midst of our story, that, that he is bringing good out of suffering, that one way or another he's going to order all things for his glory and our good so we can trust him even in the midst of suffering. So we've seen Hannah's problem. We've seen Hannah's prayer. But then the last thing that we see in this text is Hannah's sacrifice. Let's look at what happens in verse 19. 
They rise up early in the morning. They, they worship. They go home. And then it says that Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's not that God had forgotten her or that God has a, a poor memory. But when you study that phrase in the Old Testament, that it's, it's connected to God remembering his promises, remembering his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that it's, it's rooted in the, the covenants of God himself, that, that God remembers his covenant faithfulness. And on the basis of his promise, she conceives she bears a son, and they name him Samuel. And then she, she weans the child, it says, which um, most scholars believe would be three years in ancient society. So she doesn't go up to Shiloh to worship for those, those years. But then finally, after three years, she goes up to the tabernacle with this precious little boy whom she had prayed for, and unlike the, the pagan nations around Israel who would sacrifice their children on a bloody altar, she, in a sense, sacrifices her son um, by dedicating him to the Lord's service, that he would grow up in service at the tabernacle of God in the presence of the Lord, that he would grow up as a judge of Israel, a prophet of Israel, and she didn't know that he would be the great kingmaker who would anoint both David and Saul someday. But yet this little boy comes, and she's willing to let go of him, to not be with him in these, these years. When she would see him when they would go up to visit the tabernacle. And for those who have children, you know how hard that would be to drop your three-year-old child off, the child that you had prayed for, uh, to not see the child, to, to not see all of the developmental marks along the way as the child grows. This would be painful. This would be hard. But even here, I think there is a, a lesson for us that when we think of the gifts of God in our life, when, when God pours a gift into our life, what is the response to his gift and the response is to take the gift that God has given us and to, to give it back to the Lord. If, you, if he's given you talents, to say, Lord, I'm going to give the talent back to you to serve you. That if he's, if he's blessed you with a material possessions, you say, Lord, I want to give this back to you. If he's um, blessed you with, with family, with children, you say, Lord, I want to dedicate my, my children to you. All the gifts that I possess ultimately belong to you. Lord, I want you to take them. I want you to, to use them. And this is the response to grace. We don't sacrifice so that God will like us and accept us. That we, we take what God has given us by his grace, and then we, we give it up back to the Lord in praise. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, where he says to present your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord which is your spiritual worship. But then there's another sacrifice here. We see Hannah's son, but then we also see Hannah bringing an animal sacrifice. It says that she brings up a bull. And this would have been extremely valuable. I mean, if you were going to try to go to a farm and buy a cow to then 
be slaughtered and put in your freezer, that's expensive. That's a lot of meat in economic terms. It's, it's the same thing in that time. To, to bring an entire bull, this is valuable economically. But the significance of this sacrifice is even deeper. That this is a key when you read the Old Testament. Whenever you come across animal sacrifice, what is the significance? Why are they sacrificing an animal here as she's dedicating Samuel to the Lord at the tabernacle? And it's ultimately that God gave sacrifices to point forward to this, to this greater reality that Jesus would come as the true sacrifice. And even here, the sacrifice demonstrates God's grace that in and of themselves, they couldn't approach the tabernacle. They couldn't approach the, the temple of the Lord because of their sin, because of the holiness of God. That something had to die in order to reconcile them to God, to bring them into close fellowship, into communion with God. And that's what Jesus does. And so when you fast forward a thousand years from the time of Hannah, you consider the rise of another king, this other epic moment in human history, that there's an ordinary man, Joseph, this ordinary woman, Mary, that there is a baby, not Samuel, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Outward, no outward glory, Nothing that would people would look on and say, this is the decisive moment. But yet God was at work. That Jesus, the true ultimate Samuel, grows up in the presence of the Lord as truly God and truly man. To perfectly obey, to, to be the sacrifice, to be the sacrificial bowl poured out in the presence of the Lord so that we can be forgiven. So that then we can give up our lives, everything to the Lord as a living sacrifice in response to his grace. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your love that when we are completely helpless, when we're completely hopeless, that that is not an obstacle that, that you begin to, to act when we acknowledge our inability. Yes, Lord, we identify with the inability of Hannah, that she was, was hopeless in herself, but yet you remembered her in your covenant faithfulness. And Lord, we ask that you would remember us. I know that there is uh, pain, there's hard, hardship represented in the room here, uh, that there are people in this room or watching online who have been praying for years for you to, to show up and demonstrate your faithfulness. And Lord, we know that you hear our prayer, that you're not disconnected from us, that, that you demonstrate that ultimately in sending Christ, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, we, we approach the throne of grace. Uh, we, we come to the, to the, the temple of the Lord, uh, not because we have anything in our, of ourselves, but because you have opened up the way. So Lord, give us the, the strength, the, the heart to follow the pattern of Hannah, dedicating everything that we love most, everything that we hold dear, to give it up to you as a sacrifice of praise. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.